The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. I don't know how you feel when you come up to a construction site, um, whether you're coming home from work or there's something going on kind of in your neighborhood. Uh, words that come to my mind are usually words like annoying and delayed and hindrance. There's a major construction project going on right now outside of our house, and it's a long-term project, so it's about a year long, and the city is essentially putting in roundabouts instead of stop signs, and they've totally torn up one side of the road and rebuilding the other side, and really annoying if you're in a hurry trying to get somewhere, or if you're trying to have your kids cross the street and go to the swimming pool. I don't know if it sounds like I'm complaining, but kind of. There's been a lot of consternation in our little city about this project, especially because some don't agree that the roundabouts in the first place are even going to solve the traffic problem. So that makes the delays and the other hindrances even worse if you don't believe in the project that, that they're actually doing all this for. It's not worth it to the people. So, But what if, it, what if it were? What if there was a project that was worth it to us? Imagine you had a, a big construction project going on in your neighborhood and all of a sudden you hear these jackhammers and piles of rubble are stacking up and traffic is being rerouted and so you go to basically check out what's going on and you walk up to the first person that you see they're waving traffic and say hey what are you guys building like what what's coming in here and the guy says well I don't know I'm just a traffic guy I just work here and then you go up to the next person and he's uh, driving a cement truck and he doesn't know either neither does the the guy who's driving the 18 wheeler wheeler full of material but then you finally meet the, the foreman, and he actually does know what's being built. It's going to be a new HEB right next to your house, praise the Lord, or a new water park or whatever would make you happy. Suddenly, all those distractions and delays and that mess and all those noises, well, they have a purpose now, and I think I can actually deal with those. It's a good purpose. So I know what it's all working toward. I think often if we're honest, we feel like those workers on that site who are just working, and we're, we sort of forget what God is doing and what the big vision of what God is doing in our midst, particularly in the local church. Uh, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are dispersed across Asia Minor that are seeing a lot of chaos and discouragement, but he's reminding them that God is doing something, that God is building his church. He's building a spiritual building with living stones. And ultimately, in God's sight, it is the most precious, important structure in the universe. And if we view the church that way, with God's eyes, this vision from the Bible, we can deal with some of the the mess around us, some of the relational rubble or the friction, even the persecution that might come, or even the disappointment. God is building something for his glory. And it's all rooted, not in the skills of the workers or the strategy of the foreman, but in his cornerstone, Christ Jesus. Listen to the way Peter says this here in our text. Second, 1 Peter 2, beginning there in verse 4. This is God's word. As you come to him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Here's the way I would sum up the main point of this passage in a sentence. By faith... Believers are united to Christ and His people and forever secure in Him. By faith, believers are united to Christ and His people and forever secure in Him. Peter says, come to Jesus continually by faith and no matter what circumstances you face, you will be securely built up into this spiritual temple that is the church of the living God. And he he gives us two specific encouragements. And I think if you think about this, the way that he's trying to encourage these embattled, discouraged, possibly persecuted, definitely suffering Christians, here's the two things that he wants to remind them of. First is God is building his church. Number one, God is building his church. And then secondly, he wants to remind them and us that Christ is the cornerstone. God is building this church and Christ is the cornerstone. You see that listed there in your notes. If you want to follow along in your bulletin, uh, you'll be helped to do that. Friends, God means to get glory, particularly through his church. That's what Ephesians 3.21 teaches us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and more, forevermore. Amen. Because I hope you see the church that way. And I hope that as you look at God's word this morning, you'll be given the eyes to see it the way that, that Peter does, and you'll be able to endure whatever is before you. That you won't reject the stone that is Christ. So first, let's be reminded of this truth that God is building his church. You notice that as we come to these verses Peter drastically changes the imagery that he's been using. If you remember, he's been focused on earnest love for one another. That we're, we're supposed to have love for each other that's rooted in a new birth. That's, this birth imagery is very prominent. It was the imperishable seed, if you remember, the seed of the gospel that brings us uh, to life and then endures within us. And so we're like newborn babies longing for this pure spiritual milk of the word of the word. And then, and then tasting and seeing that the Lord is good through that milk and through the gospel, this goodness that we see, that taste acts like a, a spiritual sword that cuts the roots of malice and hypocrisy and envy and slander in our lives. So that's where he's been, and then he just comes right into and kind of switches to a totally different image, this picture of a building of, of stones. You see there in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So it seems like what Peter wants to do is couple this this call to love one another 
earnestly with the reality that rejection and suffering are coming. Love one another earnestly as Jesus loved out of the love that he's shown you and know that rejection and suffering are coming. Rejection by men is what these believers are beginning to experience. They are elect exiles, remember, on earth. That's the way Peter intentionally describes them. Both of those words are important. So, so this way of, of life, this way of love, this way of Christ, it's not the way of the world. They won't fit in here. They aren't fitting in. They're wondering, where do we fit in? Where is our security and our identity? So he means to encourage them, particularly in their union with Christ. He is the living stone of verse 4. That's what Peter sees as the, the living stone. He too was rejected by men. And at the same time, he was chosen and precious or honored by God. And that's a category Peter wants to build into all of our minds. You can be chosen and precious, honored in God's sight, and rejected by men. In fact, that's often the case. Peter's learned that Jesus is the stone, probably most clearly from Jesus himself. You remember what Jesus taught in the parable of the tenants? He told the story of a man who built a vineyard and he leased it to tenants as he went to another country. And then he sent his servants to collect the, the fruit from that vineyard and the tenants beat those servants, they stoned some of them, and killed some of them. And so the owner sent more servants. And the result was the same. And so finally he sent his own son, thinking, surely they will respond to my son. And the tenants, however, saw him and said, well, this is the heir. Let's kill him and we'll get the inheritance. And so they did. And Jesus concluded that parable this way. In Matthew 21, 42, he said, have you never read in the Scriptures... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So Jesus there quotes Psalm 118, 22. Sam mentioned it earlier. Peter's going to mention it again in our, in our passage. where, um, But he quotes here and reminds us that Jesus, the Son of God, was rejected by the tenants of that vineyard and was killed and this was the Lord's doing and now he is a living stone in other words the stone that was rejected has been vindicated following Jesus death was his resurrection and now he is the cornerstone and Peter says this living stone that you're coming to you're to taste and see that he's good come and drink this milk of the the gospel and when you do you are going to be made like him Notice how you see how we are like him in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see the picture of union with Christ there? Peter's saying when you're rejected, you can be encouraged because you're in good company. Just notice how the church takes its entire shape from the living stone, from, from Christ, this rejected stone that becomes the cornerstone. You too are living stones. Look at the, just the effects of our union with Christ. Just as the fulfillment of the temple and tabernacle throughout the Old Testament was reached in Jesus Christ, so too now you are a 
spiritual house. The temple was the place where Israel met with God. They met through animal sacrifice, through the blood of bulls and goats, and this temporary covering for sin. And God God used that as as a covering, but more than that, as a pointer to the ultimate temple that would come, the meeting place between God and man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of that temple imagery and and picture. He's the fulfillment of the, the priesthood. He is the great high priest whose offering for sin was sufficient to pay the debt for sinners that we owe to a holy creator. The author of Hebrews says this, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, meaning his priestly work was complete. It was finished. And notice Jesus is making us into a holy temple, into priests. We are both the temple and the priests who are at work sort of in the temple. Peter just lays up these images for us to see what God is doing in us. We are a holy priesthood able to draw near to God ourselves. Not having to go through any formal priesthood or hierarchy or or go-between We can come to God ourselves because of Christ. Individually, we can do this. We are individually priests. And then the context here is corporately, we are a priesthood together drawing near to God in worship as a community. And then as a community representing God to the world, just as a priest would to the people. And just as Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for sins, notice Peter says you too offer sacrifices. You offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God through Christ. So I think this is just Peter's way of saying, friends, God is building his church. That's not just a sentence that should roll off our tongues, but it should deeply resonate in our hearts. Think about the security that comes from that truth. God is building his church, not you or me. That phrase being built up is not an imperative. Peter doesn't say, go build the church. It's being done to us. God is the one building the church. That's in the indicative mood, which simply means God's the one doing it. He's doing the building. It's being done to us. Even when we look around and and we see some mess or are discouraged or some confusion We're not sure what's going on. We can rest in this reality that God is doing this cosmic construction in our lives and in our church for His great glory. He's building something beautiful. And it involves you and it involves me. And that should amaze us. If you just want to kind of cultivate thankfulness in your life, just meditate on the grace here that Peter says we've received through our union with Christ. We should be stunned at this grace. The, the wonder of our salvation is just this picture of the delight the Father has in the Son. Now is the delight He has in us because of Christ. He delights in us and He approves of us. Some of us need to be reminded particularly of that this morning. Especially if you're constantly searching for someone to approve of you now. You're, you're searching for acceptance. Maybe even God's acceptance. The logic goes like this. Jesus is the sufficient and perfect offering to pay for all of our sins. The atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God. We we can't save ourselves. And because of Jesus, when we're united to Him by faith, 
God is then pleased with us. He approves then of us. And listen, all of our efforts to serve Him and minister to others in His name. I think that's what spiritual sacrifices means here. It's kind of this general, comprehensive way of referring to all that believers do in the power of the Holy Spirit to glorify and serve and enjoy and obey God. In the New Testament, you find spiritual sacrifices include a list of things. Things like evangelism. Peter's going to talk about evangelism next next week. We'll see that in the next verse, in chapter 2, verse 9. He's going to talk about that as a spiritual sacrifice. He talks about... um, Paul says the giving of financial gifts is a a spiritual sacrifice. Philippians 4.18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I don't know if you've thought about that. Your gifts for gospel purposes as a spiritual sacrifice pleasing to God. The New Testament says when you sing songs of praise... You're giving spiritual sacrifices to God. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him, let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And just a minute ago, when we were singing together, we were giving spiritual sacrifices that were pleasing to God. It doesn't matter how your voice actually sounded. It's from from your heart, and the lips are fruit of you praising and acknowledging his name. Our, our singing matters to God. It is pleasing to God when it's, when it's done in this way from our heart. We could go on. The, the doing of good deeds, sharing our possessions, spiritual sacrifices. Paul says we should offer our entire body up as a, as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1. So I don't know what you think about when you think about your kind of spiritual sacrifices to God. You may think of them this morning as just kind of pretty lousy. Like they're, if I was going to give them a grade, maybe kind of a C. Maybe a B plus on my good days. Pretty unimpressive. But notice the way that we can here with Peter apply the gospel even to these things that we're doing in response to the gospel. Notice he says, our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus covers all of the inadequacies of our works of obedience. He covers all of our inadequacies in our desire to serve Him and serve God so that God is pleased with us because of Christ. Even in our imperfect and inconsistent efforts to serve Him. That would encourage you and spur you on to greater obedience as you seek to serve Christ. As you seek to draw near to Him in in worship and, and in praise. In the Old Testament, it was only the Levitical priests that could draw near to God. But Peter says, notice, come to him. When you come to him, you're a priesthood. We have this access to God ourselves through Christ. Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. In Christ, you have approval and safety and you are honored because of who he is. So really, there's, there's kind of two building projects going on all around us. Some people are going to be trying to build something for themselves. They're going to try to build something that as they're doing it, they're actually rejecting 
what God is doing. Rejecting the cornerstone. And then there's also this other structure, this spiritual house, this holy priesthood for those who are accepted through Christ, who are being built up with whom God is pleased. But you just need to see that not all spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God. Just because we do good deeds and we seek to help someone else when they're in need, or, and then we sort of transfer that and say, well, God will eventually honor me on that day of judgment because I did good things. No, it's only through Jesus Christ that we'll be approved. Only through Jesus Christ that we'll be accepted in God's eyes. Don't look for any other way of of negotiating with God. Our only way to God is through Christ. Being washed and sanctified in the blood of Jesus. What building project are you involved in in your life? Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Because you see this beautiful kind of biological, spirit-animated structure that God is building. He's making us fellow citizens, members of his family, a holy temple, a dwelling place for him. Friend, the root of all that, the deciding factor of, of whether we're in that building or we're not in that building, is actually what we do with this foundational stone that God has already laid And that's what we want to consider next in the rest of this passage. So God is building his church, number one. Number two, Christ is the cornerstone. Of that building, Christ is the foundational cornerstone. So let's look at the rest of this this text with that in mind. Verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, if you just look at at the, the passage kind of in your Bible, you can see the way it's set apart with quotations. There's three Old Testament quotations that Peter uses to sort of make this argument and to to talk about the the response that we have to the cornerstone. Two responses only. So he, he, he takes away any kind of neutrality. There's two responses to the cornerstone, and he uses these these texts to show us it will either be belief or unbelief. Or to say it another way, it will either be obedience to the gospel or disobedience to the gospel. So Peter quotes here, uh, beginning in verse 6 there from Isaiah 28. That's Isaiah 28, 16. Uh, the context there is just judgment on Ephraim uh, for their disobedience and unbelief. Those who trust in the Lord, Isaiah says, will escape judgment. And so Isaiah encouraged people, don't put your trust in foreign alliances, but put it in the Lord. And those who don't trust in God will be put to shame. The stone is to be laid in, notice, Zion. Zion which I think hints at this idea that 
that God is doing a work to replace and supersede that Jerusalem temple, which Peter has already kind of alluded to. So in today's kind of construction industry, this idea of cornerstone is is sort of lost. It's sometimes positioned, and and even some of our versions call it the capstone, sort of the last stone that's laid as the building is constructed. We sort of celebrate and pop the champagne, it's put on and and it's done. But that's not the, the imagery here. This cornerstone was laid first. The builder would be careful to properly set the stone. It's the primary foundation stone. It fixes a standard for the bearings of the walls and and cross walls throughout the structure. So the Jerusalem temple had huge foundation stones, the greatest of which was 29 feet in length, the size of a railroad boxcar. So Isaiah would even call it a stone of testing because all the other stones in the structure have to be measured by this foundational stone. So that's that's where where, where Peter is is taking that first text from. I'm laying this, this stone in Zion, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes will not be put to shame. The next text he uses is Psalm 118.22. Again, he reverts back to where he mentioned it already in verse 4. This psalm is originally talking about King David. So David returns to the temple to give thanks after his victory over his enemies. And so David is seen as the stone that was rejected by these foreign nations, these builders, and God ends up making him the cornerstone. So the stone they thought was gonna, they were going to throw out and reject ends up being the foundational stone. Now, both Jesus and Peter apply that psalm to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So in Peter's sermon in Acts 4, he says this in Acts 4.10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, they had just healed this man, standing next to them. By him, this man standing before you is well. This Jesus, then he says, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So you see how, how Peter is weaving in this, this, this truth about the cornerstone from Psalm 118. And then finally, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's from Isaiah 8, verse 14 where Israel and Judah are being called on to fear and trust the Lord rather than fear other nations. And those that fear the Lord would find him as a refuge and a strength, and those that do not would find him as a snare. They would stumble, stumble over him and then be broken. Friends, there's, there's no middle ground in the way that Peter puts this, is there? There are only two responses this morning to the cornerstone that that God has laid as the foundation of his people, belief and unbelief. And whoever believes, Peter says, will not be put to shame. Friends, I hope you know that God is ultimately the arbiter of shame and honor in the universe. He is the one who ultimately decides honor and shame. Any shame, or honor for that matter, that we experience in this life is temporary and fleeting. And Peter is seeking to encourage Christians that even if if they're looked down upon for following Jesus, marginalized, on the last day there will be no shame for them. They will not be burdened with the pressure that others are putting on them for being Christians. 
Or will they be burdened with the shame that comes from their own sins? God will bestow honor on all those that believe in Christ. I think that that honor there in verse 7 matches that word precious, or it could also be honor in verse 4 that's given to Christ. Jesus was shamed. He died on the cross as a criminal, and God vindicated him. He raised him up. And Peter says, you, as you follow Christ, may experience the same shame in life, but God will honor those who trust Jesus and will also raise us up on the last day. So friend, if you're dealing with with shame this morning or, or thinking that there's maybe no hope for this person who's so messed up, as I am, or, or maybe you haven't really considered Jesus before and now you're face to face with this offer of grace and forgiveness. What a gift of God's grace to be called to simply believe, to, to believe in the cornerstone, the one who died for your sins and rose again. Would you believe? Would you believe in Christ? Would you turn from your sins and admit to God that you've fallen short of His glory, that you've sinned, you've broken His law, and put your trust in Christ and have all of your burdens, all of your shame be swallowed up by the love of Christ? I love that Ross King says, shame is a chain, but love, this love of Christ is a hammer. Author of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, too. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus took on all the shame and bore it for us. So that, Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And that's the offer for you this morning in Christ. As much as we would rejoice in that and, and, and praise God for that, and that's why we're here in response to this goodness in the gospel, we ought to also tremble at the other response, the response of unbelief, which one that too can become familiar to us. To those that reject him, he will not be a stone of help a living stone, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter says at the end of the verse that those who stumble do so because they disobey the word. And I think that's a a clear reference to to the gospel, the word of the gospel. But in other words, this stumbling is not accidental. It's not like you walking through your bedroom at night with the lights off and you accidentally trip over a shoe. No, this is a moral stumbling, a purposeful decision to reject Christ, to disobey the word, which is, I think, the same as unbelieving. The opposite there of verse 7. And so their disobedience flows from a lack of trust in God and his chosen cornerstone. They stumble because they do not want to submit to the lordship of Christ. Friend, don't disbelieve in Jesus. Don't stumble over this beautiful cornerstone. Bow to him. Remember Peter, what he's doing here. He's trying to encourage these Christians. They're trying to be obedient to Jesus. 
They're trying to offer these spiritual sacrifices. He's about to talk about evangelism in particular, but they're being rejected. They're not seeing the fruit they want to see. They're not only being rejected, but they're being persecuted and marginalized for their faith. And so Peter adds that last phrase there in verse 8, that those that stumble and reject the cornerstone and disbelieve were destined to do this. They were destined to do this. You think back to what Jesus said in, in the parable of the tenants, this is the Lord's doing. That whole parable, that whole procedure of sending servants and sending the son was not an accident. It was the Lord's doing, which I think makes it all the more marvelous in our eyes. So friends, when we come to passages like this in the Bible, we tend to quickly try to explain them away or even fully understand and explain all of the details of how this would work kind of in the secret will of God. But we want to have, when we come to the, to the word, this, this disposition to have our minds shaped by the Bible and, and not the other way around. To have our view of God shaped by the Bible, not, not try to have our view of God shape the Bible and what the Bible says about him. And so Peter clearly says that God has destined some for disobedience and disbelief. He clearly says that this, pres- this predestination involves both the stumbling and the disobedience. It just simply is. And this is actually a great comfort for Peter's readers because he's saying that in this evil world, nothing is outside of God's control. God reigns even over those that reject him and reject the message. They think that they are thwarting and throwing a monkey wrench into God's plan. They're actually fulfilling it. The worldview of the Bible is that God is sovereignly in control of all things. From the decisions made by kings, Proverbs 21.1, to the, to the throw of the dice, Proverbs 16.33, even the cruelest and most vicious act in history, the execution of Jesus Christ, was ordained by God. Peter said in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God had a definite plan that Jesus would die for sinners. But notice that Peter says, you crucified him. You did it. So the biblical worldview never exempts human beings from responsibility. Even though they believe, and we we see that God ordains all things, yet we are responsible for our actions. Paul says in Romans 9, 14, as you can just, he can anticipate the reader in Romans 9. If you haven't read Romans 9 recently, you should read it this afternoon. All the human objections coming up of God's fairness. He says, Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Romans 9, 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Those who disbelieve stumble over the stone. And everyone who does is totally responsible for their unbelief. 
And yet God has appointed, without himself being morally responsible for the sin of unbelievers, that they would both disobey and stumble. And there is great mystery there. Great mystery there. But listen, the mystery is not whether or not God rules over sinners without himself sinning. That is clear in the Bible. The mystery is how does he do it? How does that work out? And for that, we wait for heaven. We can know several things about, about this worldview, about what, we, what Peter kind of ends with here as both an encouragement and a, just a kind of reminder as we tremble over disbelief. No one who wants to be saved is being denied by God. No one who desires salvation is being dragged, kicking and screaming into hell. Every person who perishes willfully rejects the knowledge of God that we have and that we've been given. No one will receive unjust judgment from God. We, we all deserve God's wrath and don't any of us deserve deliverance. It's only by grace that we are saved. And so exiles, elect exiles at Baptist Church of the Redeemer, take heart. None of your adversaries can thwart God's plans. No adversary can thwart God's plans. Don't reject Jesus. And be encouraged that those friends that you know that right now are rejecting and turning away, there's no authority that we have to say that's a final rejection. It doesn't necessarily mean that at all. We should continue to to pray and continue to preach and love that they would be persuaded to trust Christ for we were all non-Christians as well before we were saved. There is hope. Friends, believe on Christ. One author said it this way, Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course to the future. He's in the way. You have to do something with him. In the encounter with him, each person is changed. One for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed. Either one sees and becomes a living stone or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. Friend, what will your encounter with Jesus be like? For those that believe, we are being built up into this spiritual house, a holy priesthood. William Barclay um, recounts the story about a Spartan king boasting of a, to a visiting monarch of the walls of Sparta. And as the visiting king looked around, he could see no walled city. And so he asked, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? And the Spartan king simply pointed to his army and replied, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. So beloved, just because we don't see this, this building, Jesus is building it. When someone asks him, uh, where is your house, Jesus? Where is your renowned work, your accomplishment? He will point to each of us, to the church, and say, there are my living stones, my priests, my house, my people. And they will never be put to shame. Peter in Acts 4 concluded after going from Psalm 18 
talking to the religious leaders this way. This is where we'll end today. Acts 4.12 And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven giving among men by which we must be saved. We pray that you would come to the cornerstone this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would now be at work by your Spirit. Lord, taking dead stones and making them living. Lord, taking those that are far from you and bringing them into your house, your family. Lord, we pray that you be doing a work of removing shame. Lord, a work of strengthening us and emboldening us as we prepare to honor you despite the reception, despite the hurdles and the consequences. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful as your priests. And we would be encouraged, even now as we sing, to offer spiritual sacrifices, knowing that they are pleasing to you because of Christ. Lord, we want to respond because of your grace to us. We love you and thank you for the way that you're building this church. Lord, what an encouragement to us. We give you all of the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.